Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oates. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. This is a great, great Thursday morning. Uh, right quickly, I want to give a shout out to Councilwoman Anita Bonds from D.C., who has created the LEC, the Limited Equity Cooperative Housing uh, Task Force. And we had a hearing yesterday, and that was quite, quite exciting. But today, we're going to talk about the impact of co-ops on the U.S. economy. And we have two people online this morning. We have Margaret Lund and Lahia Edmonds. Good morning, ladies. Morning. Good morning. Uh, who want to start off first talking about how you got involved in co-ops? What's been your history with co-ops? Okay, Margaret. <laughs> okay, I'll start. <laughs> That's the longer answer. Well, let's see. Um, I've worked directly in the co-op sector for kind of 25 years or more. But my dad was interested and active in co-ops. He was one of uh, early board member of um, Group Health, which is now Health Partners, which is the largest consumer-governed um, health, uh, health plan, and they're also um, own clinics and stuff like that. Um, anyway... So he was involved with that in various ways. And so I don't know, you know, there's probably something about, you know, it just gets in your blood. So it wasn't like I was instructed to, but I kind of knew that there was this other way of doing things that was, you know, really impactful and above board. And then I, you know, I just, I was interested in, in the issues and democracy and self-help and people being able to just do things for themselves and co-ops fit right in there. So, um, so I worked with um, employee-owned businesses. Uh, early in my career, and then I started working directly with with cooperatives in 1992, and I've been doing it ever since. Wow. Okay. I envy people like you that that your parents got you into co-ops. I didn't learn about co-ops until I was 55 years old. So, uh-huh. so yeah, you got it early on. And what about you, Lahia? Um, How you say your first? Leah. Leah. It's just oh. spelled a little differently, but okay. Um, Leah. Okay. Yep. Leah Edmonds, and and I'm a researcher at Urban Institute, which maybe isn't exactly within the cooperative space, but I can tell you a bit about my work and how I got into writing this paper, the ABCs of Cooperative Impact. So Urban Institute's a nonprofit, nonpartisan research organization. We recently celebrated our 50-year anniversary. Um, we were created by President Lyndon Johnson's administration. Under the Great Society program, they wanted a research institute that could evaluate the war on poverty. And since those days, we've, we've evolved, we've grown. There are now 12 research centers that focus on everything from healthcare to criminal justice system. And the center I work in is the Metropolitan Housing and Community Center. And my work in that is in community and economic development. So to backtrack a little bit to my connection to cooperatives, well before I worked at Urban Institute, I spent about five years as a union organizer working with uh, low-wage workers in healthcare and childcare sectors, predominantly 
black and brown women in Chicago, East St. Louis, who were trying to fight for better pay, benefits, access to career ladder. And it was through organizing I was introduced to cooperatives, specifically in the home care sector. Mm -hmm. So worker cooperatives, the Cooperative Home Care Association in New York is obviously huge in the field and presents this different model of how workers can improve themselves, become worker owners, uh, access a different level of, of wage and benefits, as well as respect and dignity for the work. And I saw firsthand that private, for-profit home care corporations were doing the work often at the expense of, of client care, as well as workers' uh, fair treatment, fair pay, and access to opportunity. So I became interested in cooperatives through through that exposure to home care co-ops. And from there, I went on to really focus in in my graduate school time in community and economic development, thinking about the research methodology of how do you measure economic impact that's beneficial for all folks, not just, you know, the, the existing business class. How do you plan for community development that's inclusive and supportive, especially in communities that have historically been under-resourced? So with that kind of journey, getting to Urban Institute, when the National Cooperative Business Association, NCBA CLUSA, was interested in getting kind of an outside organization to help them think about metrics for measuring impact. My colleague and lead author on this, Brett Theodos, was in conversation with them, and I was really happy to jump on because of my previous kind of exposure and interest in co-ops, as well as my background in measurement and evaluation. Leah, it sounds out you got the bug also. <laughs> a I, whole I different way. I did. Yeah, it's a different a different path, but I have been learning so much from folks like Margaret and others in the field who really have been so generous with their time and knowledge about co-ops beyond like my my small knowledge of home care cooperatives to expand that and think about what housing cooperatives mean, what credit unions are doing and and giving me a much broader exposure in doing this research. You just described the fifth principle of co-ops as uh, education, as information, uh, knowledge, just transferring of data. And I found that in the, in the co-op world, people do that. And it's so it's exciting to, I've taught 12 years in my career, and it's just so exciting to see knowledge being transferred. And there's no sort of, I've got to hold on to this. I've, I, if I give this away to you, I lose my advantage and all of this stuff. But people really do share data, and that makes it very, very nice. That's one of the other things. Well, that was the first thing I liked about this. Well, maybe the second. Um, so let's talk about the ABCs, the impact of co-ops. So let, let's start with mm -hmm. you, Leah. Yep. Can you tell us, the audience, and my, my, what was the methodology that you all used? And I heard you say that NCBA wanted to, to be able to measure impact of co-ops. So how right. did you go about doing that? Yes. So what we did, um, we're not actually measuring that impact. We're giving kind of the tools so that cooperatives themselves can can measure their larger community impact. And And we know a lot of research and work has all already been done on the benefits for members and cooperatives. The paper that I worked on was actually looking into what are the spillover effects that uh, cooperatives provide to the larger community and how can co-ops kind of get the tools to measure how they build equitable, healthy, sustainable communities, inclusive economies that speak not just within the co-op world, but to policymakers, um, to a state legislator, so they can better tell the story of um, cooperatives through data and the measurable effects that go beyond this member received this benefit. It's 
actually a whole community benefits when there's uh, a cooperative business in a neighborhood or in a county in a rural area. Okay. So, Margaret, they, <clears throat> they're talking about the types of co-ops in this paper. And their, their definition is a little bit different from mine. So can you just tell us about the types of co-ops that you know about or even the ones that are in the paper? Yeah, so my part of this project, which was a collaboration, it's um, NCBA and Co-op Development Foundation, Robert Wood Johnson, Urban Institute, and, and I'm one of the researchers on it as well. So my part of this project was to do case studies and say, okay, how does, like, you know, how does this abstract idea of access, <laughs> you know, like, what does that mean to somebody, really, in the community? And so, um, it's you know, it's a big topic, because all of us in co-ops, we, you know, we all, you know, it's like the elephant, like we know co-ops, but maybe we only know our part of co-ops or, or the way that co-ops work in, in our area or in our sector or whatever. And, and co-ops are really obviously very diverse. So we were trying to say that, that these seven things are something that, that all co-ops really have in common. It's a, it's a commonality no matter if you're like a little tiny, you know, worker co-op cafe or you're a huge electric co-op, you know, there are things that we actually all have in common. So, um, so it was a big task of, of trying to, you know, corral these ideas. So we ended up kind of focusing, you know, in certain sectors. So, so, so like, you know, finance one, like credit unions. And then we put farmers, producer co-ops in with business co-ops because it's like independent people with independent businesses and then they're collaborating together. And housing co-ops are one and utilities are one, consumer and workers. So, you know, it's always like a little imperfect in how you kind of group people together. But then within those categories, we were looking in uh, my part of it for just examples and stories from people of, of what, you know, what these things meant. Like, what does that mean that co-ops, you know, are about civic engagement? You know, like, <laughs> so anyway, that was my part of the project was kind of collecting those stories within these kind of sector areas. And then, um, and then the paper has a longer case study of a good example in each case. Okay. So what I would like to do is if I could get Leah to talk about the seven principles that you mentioned and access is the first one. That's the A one, A for access and the ABCs. So if Mia could talk about what access is, what it means, maybe even how you measure it. And then Margaret, if you could give us some examples of the different sectors and what does it mean for that particular sector, like of credit unions or food co-ops? Yeah. Or, so Leah, I want to talk about access first. What as the first of the seven? Yeah. Right? So our seven, and they go alphabetical, beginning with access. Um, I would note we we created this thinking about both from from the data world a little bit of the outputs and outcomes. So outputs being the quantity of an activity, such as the number of loans a credit union might give as well as an outcome, um, which would be that enduring change in attitudes, behavior, economic conditions that come from it. So that credit union gives a loan, and that increases housing stability for someone. That's an opportunity for a new Black-owned business in a community. So thinking about both kind of what are those more mission-driven outcomes as well as specific outputs. And like Margaret mentioned, you know, we know it's a, a diverse field, and we weren't trying to tell any one kind of type of co-op how to measure it, but give a framework so they could apply what they already know, what data they already have to this. And and I'd also, just before I start saying, data defined not just as the numbers, but as Margaret really beautifully illustrates, the, the more qualitative or narrative research. What are the stories of that? What are interviews that you can do with members in the community that are 
also, you know, showing the themes of how cooperatives benefit a larger community. So, so that being said, I can, I can start with access and then um, we'll go through to business sustainability and, and move from there. Okay, let, me, let, me, let me get you to stop for a moment because we have to take our sure. first break. But in talking about access, we got seven different variables that we're going to talk about. <clears throat> I want to take one of them at a time. So I'm going to want you, when we get back from the break, to talk about access and how you did it. Uh, I guess you talked about outputs and outcomes. And then I would like to Margaret to tell a story about one of the different types of co-ops and its outcomes, outputs and outcomes as it relates to access. And then we'll go to the next and the next. So that's what I have in mind. And we'll be right. we'll be right back. Please, everybody out there, don't touch that down. We'll be right back. Talk about access. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Co-op. And we are talking about a book or white paper, the ABCs of Co-op Impact, with Margaret Lunn and Leah Edmonds. So what we said before the break was we're going to talk about the first variable that was measuring impact, and that's access. And Leah's going to talk about what access is, what's the kind of outputs and outcomes of access, and then Margaret's going to follow back with an example or a story. Okay, Leah, you're up. All right. So a cooperative can increase access to affordable, quality products, services, suppliers, and markets, lowering costs and serving markets and communities historically seen as, and I'll use quotes, higher risk or underserved. So what that might look like when we talked about kind of outputs and outcomes in the credit union space, for example, would that could be something like expanded account and product availability, more flexible underwriting standards. You could measure, um, you know, the fact that there are lower rates and fees at credit unions. There's personalized customer service, decreased use of high cost alternative financial services, such as check cashing. So were it not for that credit union there, would people be turning to less desirable options? And then in kind of the outcome space, also improved financial health for, for members in the community that credit union serves. So that's, that's how we started thinking through all of these. And Margaret um, has really great case studies that, that explore this much more deeply as well, how that's being applied. Okay, Margaret, tell us some of these case studies okay. on access. Yeah, so access is a, is a core one. Um, and the, the greatest story, which, which is not um, as well known as it should be, you know, in America is the story of the rural electric co-ops. I mean, it just was an enormous, enormous change. I mean, it, you know, it's hard to imagine in, from sitting from our, you know, iPhone-linked world or whatever that, um, depending how old you are, like some of our grandmas, uh, grandpa <laughs> grew up without electricity. And when you think of what that means, it's not just sort of the convenience, like I can't watch TV. It was like, you know, women were boiling um, laundry outside on fires, you know, to, to wash clothes. And people were, you know, running with lanterns, you know, to the barn to go take care of the cows or whatever. I mean, you know, it was a it was a huge deal, and it's really hard to do, believe that you know up up until the 30s. I mean, up until the 
rural electrification that was part of the New Deal, that enormous section of rural America didn't have electric power. And the the thing is, like we all know, like electricity existed, right? Like people in, you know, cities had electricity in their homes for years and years and years, you know, before the 30s. So it wasn't a technology problem. It was a problem basically of, of access. Of access. Like you couldn't make enough money. I mean, everybody, you know, you look at like rural areas, how far is it from one customer to another? There's a lot of miles there. Somebody has to lay some you know, <laughs> groundwork, uh, you know, for those miles and, and an investor on utilities like, yeah, not so much. You know, I would rather serve an apartment building where, you know, I don't have to do that. I can just like wire one building and, all, you know, I can make all this money, whereas in a rural area you don't. So that's one of the huge, just really, really starting um, examples of our working cooperatively that communities. And it wasn't, I mean, the government helped. Of course, obviously they did. There were government loans because they're utilities. I mean, you're, you're building big things, you know, people can't afford to just, you know, in the middle of the depression to finance, you know, a transmission, co- you know, whatever, co-op or something. But um, it, the whole structure really was based on people, like they had to sign up. It was a depression and they had to put some money on the table if they wanted it, you know, and um, people had to go around their communities and organize and get enough neighbors and say, we all want this. And so it was really, um, and they're still today, they're governed by community members. Those are utilities that, that aren't, you know, governed by investors. They're governed by people in the community. So that's one of the biggest, because it makes this enormous difference if, you know, you look at the data about what difference electrification makes. It's not just, again, it's not just convenience. I mean, like uh, literacy rates shot up in rural areas because guess what? Like people can do their homework at night, you know, not by kerosene lamp. I mean, it's, you know, in businesses, you can start in businesses. And if somebody has a electric, uh, you know, washing machine that, that, that farm, uh, usually wife, almost always wife, you know, just saved hours and hours and hours of time. And what could she do at that time? Well, she, maybe she starts a little business and raises some chickens and does something else, you know. So it was a huge difference, and it really had to do, it was all about access. It wasn't about technology because, of course, it existed. So I think that's really the best. And then, you know, credit but, unions in particular. Well, before, you, before you move oh, on, yeah, uh-huh. you were kind of smiling, I heard in your voice while you were talking about this, but I grew up in Bluefield, West Virginia. Yeah. And and there, in our home, we had electricity and water, but we had an outhouse. We did not have, and this is, I think it came in the, in the house in about in the mid-60s, maybe, wow. uh, early 60s. Uh, but we were considered wealthy, my grandmother was, because we had a house with electricity and water in it. Right. And that, and that was extremely amazing. And, and looking back, I would think we grew up relatively poor, at least through my generation, but this just having the electricity and Martin Lowry, who's the vice president of the National Rural Electric, I guess it's the foundation or organization. He was talking about how these big burly guys will go to communities now outside of the U.S. that don't have electricity and they'll put up the lines. They, they will go. And this is the other thing that co-ops do help other co-ops form and so forth. So they'll go to Guatemala, El Salvador or some other country. Africa, Latin America, and they put up these lines and they said, when the lights come on, these guys come back all teary eyed, having seen the the joy in people's faces and experience that they can do their homework at night. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's so access. It's a great example. Thank you. Right. And, it, and it's so, it's so cooperative because it's really about self-help. So it's not like they went and gave them a whole bunch of money, right? Like right. here, we're so great. We're rich. We're going to give this to you. They're like, we gave you you know, the opportunity. We give you a tool that you can use and you can take your ingenuity and your energy and your smarts and, you know, your commitment and you can make something of that because now you have, you know, this tool. 
And so that's, you know, really what co-ops are about. They're not about, like, here's the thing. There's, like, they're about self-help. There's self-help. Like, it's a tool. Here's self-help. The, you know, Self-responsibility. You know, do something great because I know you can, you know. Yes. <laughs> but, yeah. So it's anyway, access is a huge part. And then, uh, you know, we don't have a ton of time. But, of course, credit unions are a huge part of that, too, particularly community development credit unions are a huge part of access. I mean, if you look at the data, the, you know, the average account size of credit unions is really small compared to banks. And, you you know, you might like, well, why, you know, why are they all so small? But it's like because, you know, a lot of people, that's what their life is. You know, the credit unions like going where people are at and helping them and, you know, giving them their first accounts or their only accounts. I mean, the, the case study I did uh, was actually the D.C. credit union in, you know, in your town. And, like, D.C., their rate of people being unbanked is like 20% above you know, the rest of the country. So it's, it's hugely important that community development credit unions like DC Credit Union are around so they can, can be there and, and um, give people affordable um, access to kind of basic financial services without ripping them off, you know, like in their interest. So you say unbanked, mean, meaning that 20% more people don't have a bank account or a checking account in DC than the rest of the yeah. nation. Yeah. And that means that they will go somewhere to a predatory lender right. or get their check cash and pay 3% or something just to get their check cash and all of these different ripoffs. I call them ripoffs. Yeah. Okay. Where if they join a credit union, not only can they get to their checks cash at no charge, but they can get loans and loans might be to buy a computer, buy a refrigerator, buy whatever. And uh, because a group of people put their money together so that they can borrow when they need it, buy a car and then eventually buy a house. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's access. So we want to go next to business sustainability and stability. So yep. that's the B. So Leah. business sustainability. Yeah. A cooperative business structure can increase firm survival and profitability through higher and less volatile revenues, lower costs, and a focus on long-term outcomes, including scaling the cooperative to compete with even multinational corporations. So when we thought about the metrics, how you could measure something like this in the space of maybe a marketing or a processing or a purchasing co-op, that could mean things like measuring the improved marketing and distribution that co-op provides, increased productivity and production, uh, lower costs for suppliers and services, increased market share for that company, improved profitability, decreased revenue volatility, and increased firm survival. So that's the way we were thinking about measuring. And again, um, Margaret can really bring that to life with how co-ops are sustaining businesses over long periods of time and having really tremendous impact on their communities. Okay, Margaret, that was your cue. Yeah. So um, the business sustainability is really one of the major outcomes um, of the whole group of co-ops, you know, of of farmer co-ops and also um, purchasing co-ops, small business purchasing co-ops, because that's really what they're trying to do is, like, can we all work together, you know, and and, um, use our buying power or selling power to help make each of our individual businesses work better? And one of the best examples, I think, of this whole thing is, is Organic Valley, the um, organic milk company. So they're a familiar name um, now because they're enormously uh, successful. But, you know, they weren't always huge. When they started, nobody was doing organic dairy. Organic dairy, you know, you really would just sell it at the farm stand. I mean, there wasn't really any system. There wasn't any structure. 
And one of the problems, obviously, um, you know, in dairy, whatever issues in dairy, I mean, the price, it's a commodity and the price fluctuates enormously. And, and that's really difficult for farmers. I mean, just in general, like the price fluctuation. And then organic, you know, people are like, well, who, what is organic? And like, what do, what do we pay for organic? And so one of the huge innovations, the things that they did is they committed when they started that co-op, they were like, we're about price stability and sustainability. So, so they wanted to say, we want to make the world basically a different place. We want to make, we want to be organic farmers, um, but we want to have a more, uh, you know, we don't want to deal on this roller coaster of price situations all the time. So they just got together, you know, in their co-op, and they're like, okay, we're the co-op that's selling organic milk. You know, it's a particular thing in this market. And, you know, they figured out, like, how much does it cost? Margaret. Does it literally cost? Yep. I'm sorry. we got to stop. And we're going to come back and talk about whether you got milk or not. We'll be right back. I'm sorry. Welcome back, everybody. You know, we're talking about co-ops and the ABC, the co-op impact, and there are seven different variables. We've talked about access, and that is the members or the community or the clients or the customers will have access to products that they would not normally have. And we talked about rural electric and we talked about credit unions. And now we're talking about business sustainability. And I just get that sustainability and stability is how long do they last? How long do they go? So co-ops last a lot longer. Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nimhard said that for a normal capital uh, business, a small business will start. And after five years, only 10% of them are still around. But in the co-op world, there's 90% still around after five years. So if that's sustainability and uh, stability, that is what we're talking about. And... Margaret was talking about Organic Valley before we took break. Right. So so that's exactly right, though. Yeah, because co-ops are kind of in it for the long time, long term. You know, it's not just the quarterly, What you know, what have you done for me lately? It's like, you know, what... What are, what, you gonna, what are you going to do for me and my grandchildren? Okay. Exactly. That's exactly right. So so Organic Valley, when they were kind of building this new industry at the time, a new industry of organic dairy, they was like, well, we don't, you know, these price fluctuations in dairy are like, they're really hard on the farmer and particularly the small farmer and their members were all small farmers. Their average herd is still really like under 100 cows. It used to be 40, you know, it's like maybe 70. But anyway, they're small farmers, right? And so they said, okay, we're just going to sell our milk. We're going we're gonna to figure out what it costs for a family farm to raise organic, and then that's what we're going to sell. And that's just, that's just it. We're going to sell our milk at a price that's sustainable. And even if the market price is above that or below that, you know, our farmers know that if we have this sort of middle ground, like we're going to always give them, they're going to get stability and they're, they're going to get protected from the volatility of the market. So it might at some point, like sometimes Organic Valley pays their members more than market, sometimes they pay them less, but over the long run, it's a good deal. And everybody understands over the long run, they get a, they get a net benefit and they also get the tremendous benefit of this, you know, much, much more stable price. So those are the kinds of things that co-ops do when they get together, that small businesses, farmers, either farmers or, you know, just regular small businesses and purchasing co-ops get together. They, like, you know, have an effect on their market that helps them run their business better and helps them, you know, be a better um, source of income for their family, a more stable source of income. That's what is so exciting about co-ops. 
And I like the first principle, they're open to anybody. It doesn't make any difference about your race or religion or your politics or where you're from. It's open. Uh, co-ops are open, and I like that. I think that might have been the first reason. Who knows? But I like co-ops. There's a lot of reasons. Okay, so let's go to the third, community commitment. Leah. Yeah. A community-focused cooperative is committed to being a good neighbor through education, financial support, facility use, and environmentally sound business practices. So, like we've been saying with these past ones, to measure the broader community effects that a cooperative has, say you're a housing co-op and you have community meeting space in your building, being able to count the number of times that you have the shared use of a facility, you allow people in the community to hold their meetings there, for example. So, so being able to create metrics that allow a cooperative to measure facility use and business practice that reflect that bigger business commitment would be a, a way to measure it. I'm aware of time, so I'm not going to read through all of my different metrics for this. And I, I want to give a little bit for Margaret to, to share an example. And we can keep going through these, okay, these ABCs. Margaret? Yeah, so we could. I'll talk for hours on both these things. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I knew I knew we could do this for hours because yeah. it's exciting. Yes, I know. Talk fast. Okay, so I'm just going to tell you one of my. This is a little bit of an obscure example because lots and lots of co-ops do this. Lots. Of, I mean, they just have community space. They do education. I mean, this is really a huge co-op thing. So there's, you know, scratch a co-op and you can find, you know, something they've done for their community. But one of the ones I thought was really interesting that I came across in these case studies is another electric co-op. So it's Bark um, Electric and it's rural. It's not West Virginia, Western Virginia. So, like, you know, some co-ops, their members wanted more, you know, solar. And so the co-op's like, okay, well, you know, we can, we have the capacity, right? We have the knowledge and the, you know, financial resources. We're going to build a solar array and, you know, so people um, can, uh, you know, access, like they can sign up and say, okay, we're going to buy a little piece of this solar power or whatever. So that's great. But one of the real innovative things they did was they looked, you know, to the school districts and they, you know, and they said to the school districts, you know, you can save a lot of money if you, you know, you signed up for this solar thing. And in fact, you know, rather than just signing them up as a customer, they said, you know, because you're the schools, right, you've got a bunch of stuff. You really should just have your own solar array. And so we're going to um, we're going to build it for you and finance it for you and run it for you. So you can so make it really easy. And then you, the school district, can have your own solar um, array and have your own access to solar power and so for the it's the Bath County School District <laughs> that signed on for this and so um, so they did that they agreed to that and then so the um, so the this county it's you know whatever small school district but now 50% of their power comes from solar and they have one of their schools is the only net zero school building in the entire state of Virginia so they're in like rural rural area and they're leading in this super cool area of you know we're net zero <laughs> we have like you know no emissions and so the the students and they work it into their education because you know they have it right there they're like here's what our our literal school is doing to you know fight climate change and and make the world a better place and but what was you know so interesting about it is like they didn't just say we're going to sell it to you they, they said we're going to build it for you we're going to let you the school system like run your own one. And so what that means is that the, these systems, you know, as I'm told, I'm not an expert, but, you know, there's sort of a 20-year capital cost. Like they're all based on paying back the cost of it over 20 years, but they really last more like 35 years. And so for the school district, it means like so for 20 years, they get a good deal. And then the last 15 years, they get an amazing deal because they would have paid off basically the cost of their whole solar array, but they, um, but they still have the use of it or good, you know, good use of it for approximately 15 years. So the, 
the, you know, the real effect of it is not just, you know, the immediately like we gave you a better deal on energy and now your kids are super, you know, engaged in what's going on, but they, you know, 15, like 20 years from now, they give them like 15 years of, of almost, not free, not quite free because they have to maintain it and stuff, but almost free energy. And so it's like, it's like giving, you know, <laughs> this enormous tax increase, you know, it's like a huge contribution to the school system without raising any taxes or anything. And it's all because they have this orientation about the community, about not just can we sell things to people, but like, can we help the community help themselves? And in the case of the school district, you know, they're sort of a big enough customer that it made sense that they should just have their own array. So the, so the, the rural electric's like, here, we're going to help you. So it's just such a huge deal. People are always, and particularly, you know, are struggling and struggling to to pay for, you know, schools on the backs of property taxes or other taxes. And, you know, this real electric code just comes in and, like, makes this enormous contribution, which didn't involve taxes, which just involved them, like, being, like, smart and generous with their time and their expertise and their, you know, their resources. So they took their money, their knowledge, their time, and they created a solar panel farm for the schools yep. for the school systems yep. and which gives them almost free electricity which lowers the cost of education and the kids learn about this they go out and i think they took tours and they learn all about it, and they have a class about this so they yeah. get to learn about this in real time real life it just helps the community so and that's the seventh principle that's why it's so much in co-ops if they're living the principles the seventh principle is concern for community Right. And and if you look at the ethical values, it is honesty, integrity. I like the ethical values of honesty, integrity, concern, uh, social responsibility and concern for one another. So if you're living that concern for one another and you're social responsible and you're concerned for the community, you do things like this. And you didn't even talk about they brought broadband into. Yeah, the broadband, too. Okay. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. And all these things, I mean, education, it, it all helps the community because, they, you know, they can retain workers, they can retain, uh, you know, I mean, it just, people can start businesses, they can run their businesses better. I mean, all of those things that help small communities, you know, hang on to their, um, to their folks, which is important to their tax base and to their, you know, longevity. Leah, I'm laughing. If you give up your time, Margaret and I are going to take it. Yeah, we are. Okay. We well, I'll be quiet. No, we'll no don't be quiet. We, we can talk about yeah. this a lot longer, but we're going to go to the D, number four. Democratic governance and membership empowerment. Leah, talk so, about that for us, please. Yeah, we define that as in a well-functioning cooperative, membership actively participates and shapes the mission and decisions of the organization, which translates into broader civic and political involvement. So for cooperatives to better tell the story of what they do through data, one thing that a, co- a co-op could start collecting data on and track over time is how many of its members are engaged in broader um, civic issues. So how many run for office? How many are on the PTA? Co-op members live in our communities and and co-ops have the opportunity to track that um, and start collecting data on it to really show the story of their community and civic involvement as well. I think one of my first shows was a guy named Papa Sin from Senegal. Mm-hmm. And he talked about how the members there, they started out with housing and then they got a school and then they had a, then transportation, then the school co-ops. He kept growing. And he talked about how people then that were members of these co-ops, they went out and became on the 
uh, Board of Education, they ran for the board, then they ran for city council, and just very much more engaged in civic duty. So right six years ago, October, right away we had that conversation about member engagement. So example. Yeah, you know, that that's true, and I, that's actually a study that really needs to happen because I think that anecdotally that happens all over, that people – like people that grow up, for example, in housing co-ops, like they just have this idea that they can affect the world or something and that, you know, you carry that idea forward and it's very, you know, it's very powerful. So this is one of my favorite ones because it really does differentiate co-ops from other kinds, both um, regular companies, but also from nonprofits, you know, which are nice, but not democratic. So like, what's the difference? You know, what difference does it make? And, um, and it makes a lot of difference for people sometimes, you know, and, and um, like manufactured, um, Home communities, you know, people own the, um, they own their own homes, but they collectively own the land and they get to set their own rules. I mean, it just makes a huge difference. So people are like, well, what are we going to fix first? And what are the priorities? And people can talk about it and they don't have somebody else telling them that. Uh, what I, I also think of, um, you know, and now, I mean, we feel like, you know, food co-ops and natural food is ubiquitous and there's whole foods all over the place and everything like that. But that didn't always used to be the case. I mean, the consumer food co-ops in the U.S., you know, they really in, invented the natural foods movement. I mean, so like the market was like, oh, you don't, you know, we're going to give you canned food. You don't want all that weird stuff. And people were like, yes, we do. You know, and so we're going to create our own, you know, systems to deliver and be able to buy the stuff that we want. So sometimes it's a simple you know, is that it was like we this is what a bunch of us would like the world to look like. And so we're going to make that happen. And in the case of natural foods, obviously, a bunch of the rest of the market were like, yeah, that's a pretty good idea. That's good stuff. You know, we want that, too. But it really was a bunch of people just, you know, not saying not letting, you know, a company or a corporation say this is what you should buy. This is what you should eat. This is what you should want. And they're like, no, uh, we want something different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Here's what we actually want. And then it, you know, turned out that a bunch of other people wanted that same thing, that lots of people are interested in organic food and natural food because, you know, for various reasons, their own reasons, they just want it. That's what they want to buy. So now that's an area where, you know, sort of investor-owned companies pay catch up to the co-ops because the co-ops knew what people wanted and they know what people want because of, of members, because of democracy. I mean, that's the reason. Not because their market research is better, it's because they have democracy and they just ask people. You know, they have they have avenues and structures to ask people what they need and want and what they think, you know, their their institutions should look like. So this is the one member, one vote. That's the second principle, democratic control. And most people will talk about co ops being the small D and in our US political system is the big D. I think it's the opposite. I think the Co-ops is the big day for democracy because you have much more engagement. In the U.S. right now, I think it was 42 percent in the last election. People that could vote came out and vote. Some smaller number. I don't know if that's the exact number. but And so you just don't have that kind of engagement. And I believe that as more and more people get involved in co-ops, you will get more and more engagement. And that's number four. So we got to keep moving it here. To we do. We do. Number five, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Yeah. So for this, we said to be an effective contributor to its community, cooperative membership reflects the community in racial composition, gender, age, disability. And in addition, historically excluded communities are given leadership opportunities within the co-op. So in measuring something like this, we suggest that cooperatives can begin by collecting data on their membership demographics. And I want you to stop right there, Leah. We're going to take our final break. And that will only give us about 12 or 13 minutes to get over these final three. But I like this one. We'll come back with the principle one of this diversity. We'll be right back. 
Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOL, at 95.9 FM. Information is power, and that's why the WOL is a great partner for us, because we're giving you information a lot today about co-ops and the impact that co-ops have on our economy. And we're talking about now people that are normally left out, black and brown people, Native Americans, and so forth, people that are normally left out, and including women. So... Leah, can you finish talking about equity, diversity, and inclusion? Yeah. So saying that cooperatives can can think of this area in a, a data-driven way, they can collect data on their membership demographics, race, age, disability, income, and then they can compare that for who makes up the cooperative membership. How does that compare to non-member staff, for example, at a consumer cooperative? And also, how does that match up against the geographic area they serve or the neighborhood they're located. Cooperatives can identify mismatches in representation between the local community and the co-op membership. And with that, start making plans to, to change that and really advance, especially um, black and brown worker leadership, for example, within their co-op to better align with the community they serve. So that's, that's how we were thinking from a more data and metrics side of, of putting this framework into use. Well, I was telling you why I really like co-ops. This is one of the reasons uh, that if, if people are really using the principles and it doesn't matter about the, uh, gender or race or age, it just doesn't matter. It's just who can do the job, uh, then that I like co-ops. Example, Margaret. Yeah, I mean, you, I'm sure you have. You could do a whole show. You could do multiple shows on this because it's such an important topic. Um, and I'm sure you have done whole shows on the Federation of Southern Co-ops because that, that's obviously our shining example in um, the southern part of the United States of a whole bunch of co-ops that are started and formed and serve African-Americans. Um, Ralph the, Page and Cornelius yeah. Blanding have been on I'm and sure a couple people in their organization. I mean, it's a huge organization, yes, and right. they do great but, You know, work. another example, because Leah mentioned the worker, um, the home care co-ops, I mean, the Cooperative Home Care Associates in the Bronx, I mean, they're the biggest worker co-op in the country. They have over 2,000 workers, and in, you know, that industry, I mean, it's, it's a low-wage job and in New York those are, are almost all a lot of them are immigrant women um, Hispanic and African American women um, there are almost no white people <laughs> so it's a business you know where you could say well it could be a regular business and somebody would own it you know but instead of that you know they all own it like all those workers own that huge successful business and yeah. that's really important example for so it doesn't have to be you know it doesn't have to be high wage workers I mean they you know if it's a business people can own it right and those can be the people that work there that own it, and that's the case in CHCA. So uh, the executive director, and I cannot remember his name, I've been on and talking about some of the challenges that they have and how they work through those challenges. Right. And I've also we've had Ujama, which is a artist co-op um, of women, mainly women of color, uh, that that create different art in Pittsburgh. They've been on. So yeah, it's it's um, it's exciting stuff. Oh, I love it. Okay, now what's F? So F is financial security and advancement for workers. And cooperatives can work best for their members, employees, and the community when they provide living wage jobs with benefits, increase opportunity for wealth building, career advancement, training, and leadership development with lower turnover and higher job satisfaction. So in our, our framework for metrics, we propose that co-ops could actually survey their members and, and assess job satisfaction, um, perhaps 
track over time uh, the turnover rate and and really create kind of that, again, that data story of what the opportunities are for wealth building in a community that comes from having having it be a cooperative business rather than a non-cooperative business. Um, there are more, but again, for time, I'll stop there for some of the metric side. Wow. <laughs> we got to have you guys back on maybe yeah. maybe seven different shows on each one of these. Okay. Okay. Financial security and okay. advancement. You know, so the, the biggest example, obviously, which is worthy of its own show, you know, is the worker co-op sector because that's the, the sector of the co-ops where they say people that work in the co-op, like not only, you know, do you work for us, but you can be one of the owners. And um, I've actually written a, a manual on multi-stakeholder co-ops, which are co-ops which have more than one um, member category. So it might be consumers and workers both share ownership. And I feel like that's a really important way, an underutilized way in the U.S., um, but utilized more in other countries, that, that co-ops could um, you know, create a separate category and bring their workers into, into being one category of members along with their other members. Um, but, you know, I just want to give a shout out because we haven't really talked about housing co-ops. And even though it's not about workers, there's a bunch of data that housing stability is a huge, huge the stability of someone's housing has a big effect on like kids going to school and finishing school and also people keeping jobs. Like the more stable housing is for people, like the really the better their financial security is in a lot of different ways. And um, you talked at the beginning of the show about um, limited equity housing co-ops. I mean, housing, limited equity housing co-ops and other housing co-ops that are um, like uh, manufactured home communities or the work that the folks that you have do in New York City, um, the, the HUD co-ops, I and mean, all of those limited equity co-ops that provide stable, affordable housing, there's a huge contribution they make to each one of those households to the financial security of those individual households because they have they know they have housing it's not the rent's not going to get jacked up next week they're not going to kicked out for some stupid reason you know there's a democratic process that governs you know all the house rules and it just makes a huge difference for people so you know it's the workplace is the obvious place to look at that but it's not the only place that co-ops impact financial security for households and when you look at gentrification that's really happening here in, huge, in dc yeah that gap gets to be bigger and so forth. But John Tories from NCBA spoke yesterday at, at this um, uh, hearing that uh, Anita Bonds had, Councilwoman Anita Bonds had, and he even brought it down. I was, I was sitting next to him as he talked. We were on the same panel. And he talked about the physical health. I mean, you mentioned the other things he talked about, but I never thought about as much the physical health, how much healthier people can be when they have stable housing. <laughs> it's amazing. Amazing. Okay, now we're going to go to growth. Great. So cooperatives can be local and regional anchors promoting economic growth through stable jobs, high industry standards, consistent services, and economic multiplier effects through increased community investment, um, local hiring and procurement. So again, um, just, you know, perhaps looking at food and grocery co-ops, you could track data that says, how much of our food is sourced locally, how many of our employees come right from that neighborhood, and how much of our profit sharing is invested back into the community. So, so being able to collect data and track that over time, you can then make that kind of really holistic story of how a cooperative is expanding like broader community growth across time. Examples. Yeah, so this is another way. I mean, you mentioned the, you know, the fact that co-ops stick around longer. You know, co-ops kind of have a different horizon. Um, they're kind of the slow and steady wins the race, you know, sort of theory of economic development. And so, you know, you don't have these like enormous ups and downs, but you have like very good, consistent 
um, companies. And uh, one of one of my favorites of many um, is this worker co-op in um, Petaluma, California, called Alvarado Street Bakery. And so, like a lot of the bakeries that started, there were a whole you know whole grain bakery and started you know when the food co-op started. So they're um, when Natural Foods was picking up. So there are a lot of bakeries like them, but they're really different. And one of the things that was different about them is um, they really thought early on that a couple of visionary leaders, that they're like, okay, we're baking bread, you know, and there's only so much you can charge for a loaf of bread. And they're in Petaluma, California, which is a very beautiful, but very expensive place to live. And so they really thought about, like, how can you use the co-op model? Like, what can we do to make, you know, so that we can be a business where we can pay people enough that it's affordable to live in this community. Because that's, that's a problem with a lot of communities that are gentrifying or that the people that do the services in those communities don't, they can't afford to live there or anywhere near there. And so that becomes a, a you know, a huge problem. So what Alvarado Street did is they looked very selectively at, you know, mechanization for their bread um, and at how they use technology and the technology that they chose to use. It either had to like add to safety for workers or it had to, you know, in a in a massive way, add to kind of, um, you know, because it's a worker-owned co-op, like if the co-op made more money, then everybody would make more money. So it wasn't a win-lose, like we brought this machine and you lost your job. It was like it had to be that everybody would benefit broadly in the co-op if they, you know, adopted some, you know, new mechanized way of, of doing production. And so they... Um, they didn't run away from that. They just were very selective. And, and over the years, what they've been able to do is build a business, very successful business. They have, you know, they ship all over the country and they pay everybody enough. Um, they're, they're bakers, but they're all paid enough to live, you know, a nice life in Petaluma, California, which is a nice but extremely expensive place to live. So, you know, that's a huge part of kind of growth for that. So, like, they're not like the biggest selling thing ever but you know they're really um they're making that growth inclusive like people talk a lot about kind of like inclusive prosperity and that's really what they did they're like okay this is a you know this is a growing business this is a growing part of the country but like how do we make that so that works for everybody who you know even if they're you know doesn't matter what they're doing what their job is like how can we you know so again and it's not like charity it's not like they're giving people money, you know, mm. they're, they're giving them an opportunity to own a business and control a business. And then they run that business in such a way, you know, that they can generate money that enough, you know, enough funds and share it around in, in the way so that everybody can, you know, have a decent place to live in the place, you know, where they work. So it's just a different set. It's a series of a different set of decisions that they make that, that ultimately have different outcomes. Longer term outcomes, a longer term view when they're looking at investment and everybody included. We only have a little less than a minute to go, so I really thank you. We'd love to have you guys back. Uh, we could spend, like, a whole show on each of these seven pieces, and I, I love it. What would you like to leave people with? Which one of you? What thought? Well, I would just, I mean, on a closing thought, for cooperatives that are interested in collecting more data, because some already are, but others, this is an area for growth, asking co-ops to you know, really think about what data they already have and, and what they want to collect to better tell the story of their work. And with that, put it into action. Think about how you can collect data better, how you can analyze it, and and the audience you want to speak to when you're telling, you know, the story of your cooperative. So how do you use data to show the measurable effects a cooperative has on the lives of its members, but also the larger community? Thank and you. And I think these start that. Yeah, thank, thank you much. You. Thank you guys very much. We'll, everybody out there, we'll see you next Thursday. Please live cooperatively. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOL, and 95.9 FM.